0: at 7.30 a.m. and also a reminder about the trips to Egypt and to Greece and Israel. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, where we're enjoying fellowship with him and walking by means of the Holy Spirit, abiding in Christ, and walking in the light. When we sin, that is not occurring anymore. The Holy Spirit is still working in our lives, but to bring us back into fellowship with the Lord. And then when we are walking with Him, then sanctification or spiritual growth takes place. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're just so glad that we can be here this evening, that we can be refreshed by your word and get our minds out of the gutter of the world that surrounds us and all of the chaos and all of the idiocy that takes place. Father, the difficulties and challenges we all face as we are buried in our workplace doing different things and responsibilities all day and the pressures there as well as dealing with issues in families and with friends. Father, we pray that we can just have, be able to relax as we study your word, recognizing that it is through your word that we are sanctified, and that it is your word that strengthens us and provides a bulwark in our soul against the all of the uh, slings and arrows and everything that come against us in this life, and that we can rest in you as our shield and as our fortress, as our stronghold. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, help us to get a good grasp of the things that we're looking at, that we can understand this in in a basic sense, that we may have a greater understanding of your word as we read it and as we study it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, tonight we're going to f- wrap up this little basic series on what is Christianity, and the idea here is to think about the fact that there's just some basics that, uh, without which there is no biblical Christianity. And I'm, as I've said before, I'm using that term more and more because there's so much discussion about Christianity this and Christianity that, and there's some new group out there now called Christian nationalists, and they're just as flaky as they can be. They are not they do not believe in biblical nationalism and that whole concept of nationalism and different people's definitions and how it uh, brings in white supremacy and all of this other stuff is just uh, it, it's just crazy and we always have to fight in the devil's world against his uh, appropriation of biblical terminology and terms that have been used theologically as he twists them and distorts them. There's lots of good words out there. We believe in holiness, but we lost that to the holiness Pentecostal movement. Uh, We believe in living a life filled by the Spirit, but we lost that to the Pentecostals. I can't tell you how many times over the years when I had a church phone on my desk, I'd be called and and somebody would say, are you a Spirit-filled church? And I'd say, you bet we are. The devil has co opted biblical language, and so we have to we have to understand what the truth is and and it 's very clear that there are certain things that are essential to Christianity without them there really it really isn 't biblical Christianity, and you have all these different flavors of Christianity out there, none of which are biblical christianity and it 's fascinating as I started this because I reflected back on the times when I was in seminary and you'd sit around the lunch table or sit around during a, a time when you're stopping to have a cup of coffee and you would discuss things. And one of the things that would come up periodically is the, addressing this question and trying to synthesize a, a brief belief statement for a church and uh, what is essential and a lot of things that people would come up with or they wouldn't want to include for example nobody would include anything on angelology as being essential but you get into first peter and second peter there's a lot about angels you get into eschatology a lot of people say oh let's not let's not make eschatology a a, c- a central focal point in a, a doctrinal statement there's not, there's a lot of disagreement over different aspects of eschatology but in peter you have clear statements in 1st peter 1 about inheritance and that's future you have references in 1st peter 3 about the day of the lord i mean you just can't get away from this so what peter and james both understood to be essentials of christian faith are not exactly what is popular in a world today that has been influenced by ecumenicalism so the last part that we're looking at here is going to be on God's plan for the ages, otherwise known as dispensations, and then future things. What is the plan for the future? And one of the things I'm trying to do in pulling all of this together in one night is because there's so many folks that keep coming up and I get questions from one direction or another about, well, what about this? And what about the mark of the beast? And what about these people in Sweden who are getting a, a um, an embedded chip? And so that they can use that to buy and sell and everything, folks. We're living in the church age. We're not living in the tribulation period, and furthermore, that comes into play in the in in after the middle of the tribulation, when the Antichrist has consolidated his power. So let's not worry about these things. And we also see that when. That comes into play in the second half of the tribulation. It's more than just innocently filling out an application for a credit card and you get that and, oops, I just signed up to, to uh, follow the Antichrist. No, it's not going to happen like that. It's going to be very overt, extremely uh, overt. There's going to be like swearing an oath, like going into the military, going into service in Congress. There will be a... Uh, an oath type event where it's very clear what you're doing that you're swearing your loyalty and fealty to the ruler of the revived Roman Empire so let's just see where we've been quickly Peter talks about this phrase like precious faith indicating a specific um, doctrine that are specific to faith Jude talks about earnestly contending for the faith that it is a specific set body of doctrine. So we're asking that question, what is the body of truth which we believe? What is essential to be Christian? That if you don't believe it, you're not really believing in a biblical Christianity. Now, as I stated last week, up to this point, I think there's a widespread agreement on what I have taught so far. It's when we get into this last section that uh, because a lot of eschatology, a lot of our understanding of dispensations and God's plan for the ages didn't develop until the early 19th century and later, that you still have a lot of people who are in agreement on what I would call the core basics up to this point, and yet this is what we believe at West Houston Bible Church based on the fact that we believe in a uh, in a literal interpretation of Scripture. So we started off talking about the fact that the foundation of our understanding must be God. starts with God. doesn't start with Scripture. It starts with God because Scripture is what was breathed out by God, and that's what gives the Scripture authority. And then from there, we looked at uh, who Jesus Christ is, that he is undiminished deity, he is eternal, he has all of the attributes of God, shares them equally with God, and also he entered into human history and added true humanity to himself. So he's undiminished deity and true humanity. We then looked at the Holy Spirit, especially the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit in this church age, the baptism by the Holy Spirit, the indwelling by the Holy Spirit, the filling by the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit. What's amazing is even this week, I was reading a paper by a scholar who confuses baptism by the Spirit and filling by the Spirit in Acts chapter two. So this is still a battle that is uh, that is argued and fought by solid dispensationalists and by solid uh, Bible-believing uh, inerrantists. Okay, so there are issues there. Uh, we have the invisible realm, angels, Satan, and demons. We looked at that last, the week before last and last week. And then we looked at how we should interpret the Bible last week. Now we're going to look at these last two sections, God's plan for the ages and God, uh, God's plan for the future. And that flows from how we understand how to interpret the Bible in terms of a literal grammatical historical uh, exegesis. So, just a quick review, what does the Bible teach about how to interpret the Bible? Because the Bible interprets itself in many places, quotes itself in many places. Uh, how do how are prophecies fulfilled that were fulfilled within the time frame of the Scripture? All of those things help us to understand how to interpret the Scripture. We don't, don't develop a an independent philosophical model of hermeneutics and then read that into the text. We start with how does the text interpret itself? So we have a historical, grammatical, literal, contextual interpretation of Scripture. Now, I'm spending a little more time on this review because of a question that came in last week. Somebody asked... Well, what about culture? How does that fit in? And I would say that that fits in under the first uh, term, historical. Historical means that we believe the Bible must be interpreted in light of the times in which it was written. And so when it uses language and vocabulary from a certain era, then that is how we understand that. It's important to understand that, that historical framework. We believe that the Bible records actual historical people, places, and events, and I use the example from uh, Exodus chapter 20, uh, verses 8 and following, talking about the establishment of the Sabbath, that when God says that the basis for working six days and resting a seventh is on the pattern of his creation that he created in six days and rested on the seventh, that for that to work as a commandment with that rationale, it m- must ne- of necessity mean that uh, that Genesis 1 is talking about six literal 24-hour consecutive days. We believe also that, uh, it, that historical includes this idea of understanding the culture of the people of the time. But when we look at Scripture... We're really talking about three areas of culture. number one, you have the culture of the writer. for example, paul's background Paul's culture is heavily Jewish it's pharisaical he, would, he, he was an intense uh, philis, uh, uh, an intense Pharisee. He was uh, trained as a Pharisee. he as he says, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews and a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was the epitome of Jewish pharisaism. And so we have to understand his background before he was saved and what transpired at his salvation. He writes, though, to people who are of a Greek background, a Greco-Roman background to be more exact. So we have to understand the culture of his reader to be able to understand what is being said by one writer. We have to understand their background, their framework, And then we have to understand uh, the the framework of those to whom he is writing. For example, on Sunday morning, I'll be in a passage in 1 Corinthians where it's really important to understand the culture of Corinth. And if you don't understand what reprobates, what immorality and perversion went on in the Roman colony of Corinth, then you can easily misinterpret passages of Scripture. So you have to understand the culture of the audience at the original readers. And then you have to understand the historical context of the present readers. In other other words, when you or I go to the scripture, we have our own cultural baggage. So we have a tendency to interpret phrases and terms in light of our own background, not in light of the cultural context of Paul or the cultural context of his readers. And if I were talking to you about a pastor who then is going to teach or preach the passage, he has to understand the culture of his audience. And he may be in Ukraine or he may be in Africa, he may be talking to Muslims, he may be talking to Hindus, He may be talking to people who have a liberal Christian background, but he has to understand that culture as well. So there are uh, several different circles of culture that are involved in the process of interpreting and then proclaiming uh, the the Word of God. We saw that literal means that language is taken in its ordinary sense. It, It includes figures of speech. It includes idioms. And so we have to understand what those meant at the time in which it was written. So we have to ask these questions. What does the text actually say? Second, what did the original author intend to communicate to his intended audience? And that tells us the original meaning of the text. Application then comes from that. So we also believe in context, and that means the context of for example, ephesians one ten has to be interpreted within the context of the sentence of one, three to fourteen that has to be interpreted in the context of the first half of Ephesians, chapter one through three that 's interpreted within the context of all of Ephesians. Ephesians is interpreted in light of parallels, for example, Colossians was written at the same time and it 's very close, so they can be used to help understand one another and then it just goes on from there until it's the context of the new testament the context of the whole bible but when it comes to literal interpretation the problem is allegory and in the history of the church allegorical interpretation came in in the early 200s which is the beginning of the third century and it became the accepted the only accepted form of interpretation for approximately the next 1200 years and one of the issues here is that Israel did not mean the church was not distinct from the church. Israel referred to the church of the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, the term church referred to spiritual Israel. And you'll still have people, many people today, not just Roman Catholics, but many Protestants, who still hold to that form of interpretation. They may be literal in every other area of the scripture, but when it comes to prophecy, they fudge and they start getting into allegorical interpretation the last thing we looked at is that revelation is progressive and that means that some is things were revealed to moses later things were revealed to david things were revealed to samuel things were later revealed additional information revealed to isaiah and jeremiah and ezekiel and the post-exilic prophets so it builds as you go through scripture well when we're talking tonight about prophecy and of course the capstone of biblical prophecy is revelation then we have to understand that revelation picks up and pulls together all of these symbols and all of the imagery and everything that was set forth in earlier books going as far back as Genesis and so you have to understand all of those in a literal sense, as i 've described, literal, which means we understand their symbols, but those symbols have specific set in concrete uh, meaning as they go through scripture. so the first thing we 're asking is what does the Bible teach about god 's plan for the ages? God has a plan for the ages now i have i came up here. <sighs> And I don't know what was going on on my laptop today, but when I got up here tonight, everything was going wonky, and I had to reboot it. And I eventually had to just do a hard reboot because it just wouldn't respond. So I, just, I had noticed earlier on a slide that it changed all my font colors and font sizes, and so I have no idea how any of this is going to turn out so we have distinctions in scripture that's something that that dispensationalists are known for we make distinctions and sometimes people just make fun of us because we make all these different distinctions but it seems like the bible makes these these distinctions for example at one time believers are commanded to have sacrifices there's one stage in history where they're commanded to have these sacrifices And the sacrifices are just conducted by the head of the household during the early period before Genesis. And then uh, later, there's very formal instruction given to Israel and only to Israel about how they're going to perform sacrifices in relation to the temple and all of the different feast days and everything. And then when we get to Jesus, after Jesus is crucified, then there's no more animal sacrifices. So in one sense, as Lewis Barry Chafer used to say, you have, everybody's a dispensationalist because they understand that in the before the cross, you had to come to God on the basis of an animal sacrifice. And now we come to God, on the basis of the once for all completed sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the earth, we have other other distinctions, such as Jesus told his disciples in one place that they were to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but they were to not not to go to the Samaritans or the Gentiles. There was a limited targeted audience at the beginning of his ministry. But later, he instructs his disciples to preach the gospel to all creatures, to every human being, go throughout the world, and teach them to be uh, disciples. So this shows a distinction even within the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry on the earth. At one time, adulterers were to be punished with death according to the Mosaic law, But in the New Testament, in the church age, this is not mandated, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. same is true for murderers. Murderers were to be uh, punished with death at the... uh, were not to be punished by death at the very beginning. Cain was a murderer. He killed his brother Abel, but God put a mark on Cain and told people, don't kill him. And so Cain lived out his whole life, but this changed... At the time of the Noahic covenant, that at, from that point on, God said that anyone who takes the life of a human being because they're in the image of God, their life should be taken. And that was part of the Noahic covenant, which also promised that God wouldn't destroy the earth by water again. And the sign of that covenant is a rainbow. And God said, as long as you see the rainbow, you know I'm true to my promise. And that means all of the promises in the covenant with Noah, not just the promise not to flood the earth. So it's very clear that capital punishment continues, eating meat continues, and all of this is is valid in this age. In Leviticus, there's the observance of dietary laws that are mandated, but in Acts chapter 10, God tells Peter that those are no longer in effect. So the point is, God administers history in different ways based on modifications of his revelation at different times and so these time periods are referred to in the bible as periods of administration but the older english word that was used is the word dispensation and so i've got a, a definition here from george meisinger the founder and president first president of chafer seminary wrote that a dispensation is a block of human history an age during which God manages the affairs of the world according to his eternal plan. Now, I differ with George a little bit there. Dispensation sometimes is the same as an age. Sometimes you have two or three dispensations within one age. But the biblical emphasis, he says, is not on the time uh, by and of itself, but on the Lord's management during each period. It has to do with how God is administering human history, what he's trying to accomplish during that period based on his revelation. Now, if we're going to start this, and you're not familiar with this, the centerpiece of history is what happened on Golgotha in approximately A.D. 33. This is when Jesus Christ is crucified on the cross. Everything that happened in history before that pointed to the cross. That is, in terms of biblical revelation, everything was focusing on what God was doing, so that in galatians four four Paul said, "When the fullness of time came, indicating God had a plan, God had a purpose, and when everything came together, it was time for the preparation was over, and it was time for Christ to go to the cross. So what we have here is, first of all, the age of the Gentiles. Not only has this messed up the color, but it has messed up the uh, everything was centered and nice and everything else, so we'll just live with it. Uh, you have the age of the Gentiles. Second, you have the age of Israel. Third, you have the church age. And fourth, running off the screen, is the Messianic age. So these are broad periods of time uh, based on uh, certain Greek words, the times and the seasons. So this is a broad sense of these ages. And we have in the Old Testament period period, basically two ages, the age of the Gentiles and the age of Israel. Then in the the post-cross era, you have the church age, And that is followed by the Messianic age. So the church age of the Gentiles is covered in Genesis 1 to 11. The age of Israel is covered from Genesis 12 through the Gospels. And the church age begins in Acts 2 and extends through Revelation chapter... uh, Actually, Revelation chapter 3... And then uh, you have the Messianic age. This slide shows those verses a little better. Uh, Revelation 20: one through 10, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 12, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 60, plus many, many more. So in this chart, I'm going to try to fill out those ages just a little bit, just a little bit more. So in the first age, the age of the Gentiles, we have the Garden of Eden. We have three big events: Eden, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. Now, those mark out these dispensations because there's additional revelation given at each time period. So, initially, God gave revelation to Adam and Eve to uh, to rule over the, the birds of the uh, of the sky and the fish of the sea and the Uh, animals on the land, and they were to exercise dominion over God's creation. And so that worked great in perfect environment until they sinned. So you have that first dispensation, which is perfect environment from the creation to the fall. And then from the fall to the flood of Noah, you have the second dispensation. There's no designated authority like government uh, in that time period, everybody is just answerable on the basis of their own conscience. So the word that is used by dispensationalists for this period is conscience or human conscience, and it fails because man cannot govern himself. He is a, he is evil, and God's. Uh, God's description of this period when you get into Genesis 6 is that he's disgusted with the human race because every thought of their heart is evil continuously. But there's one family that finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's the family of Noah. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their uh, three wives, and they will be saved uh, by means of Noah's ark during the time of the worldwide flood. So that ends the second dispensation, and the third dispensation extends from the flood to the Tower of Babel. Again, man is living in a universal environment. The um, the Tower of Babel was like the League of Nations and then the United Nations. It's pure globalism. Man is united in rebellion against God, and so God judged them by uh, confusing their languages, by creating multiple languages. And so they have to become isolated into their linguistic groups which builds tribes and later nations and so nations are generated and created by God in uh, at the tower of babel and so this is the period of human government government being instituted with God's covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter uh, chapter 9 then we get into the old testament period there are three basic uh dispensations the age of the patriarchs the age of the law and the age of of messiah and so patriarchs is abraham isaac and jacob and then there's the period of time when the israelites are in slavery in egypt then with the call of moses there's the rescue and the deliverance the redemption of israel they're taking them out sinai where they receive the law And that begins the dispensation of the law. And that extends up and includes the period of the Messiah. What sets that period apart is there's new revelation in the form of the person of Jesus Christ. And he has a new message. It's the gospel of the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so this ends with his rejection and he is crucified at Calvary and this brings in uh, the church age. And then you have uh, that ends with the rapture of the church. And all believers are uh, those who are dead receive their resurrection bodies. Those who are living are, are uh, that transition instantly into their resurrection body and are taken to be with the Lord in the air this will be followed by the tribulation period where there will be um 7 years of warfare and horrors like the world has never seen according to Matthew chapter 24 it it, it doesn't transition gradually into the into the tribulation there is a strict ending to the church age and that will bring a lot of chaos into the world because all the Christians will suddenly disappear. And it is in that vacuum that the Antichrist will rise to power and consoli- begin to consolidate his kingdom, and that will take him until the midpoint of the tribulation period. And then the tribulation itself ends when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to defeat the Antichrist, his sidekick, the false prophet and they will be thrown immediately into the lake of fire, and then Satan will be uh, sent to uh, the abyss where he is chained for a thousand years. And then that will be followed by the millennial kingdom, and uh, Israel will be the head of the nations. During the period of the church age, Israel is under divine discipline and they're scattered. It's the fifth cycle of discipline. They're scattered throughout the world. So that gives you a map of God's plan for the ages. And you have to interpret scripture in light of the dispensation it's in. Because when Jesus first comes, the first half of his ministry, he is addressing Israel. He's coming to offer the kingdom. This is why he sends out his disciples to go only to the house of Israel and not to Samaria, not to the Samaritans, and not to Gentiles. But once he is rejected in Matthew chapter 12 and the Pharisees accuse him of performing his miracles in the power of Satan or Beelzebub, then at that point the, the ministry of Jesus shifts and after that, they will be sent to uh, the Gentiles and to the to the Samaritans. So you have to understand these distinctions and the distinctions that are developed in the epistles in the New Testament, which are specifically addressed to Church Age believers to describe their new relationship to God, their new the new body of Christ, which is the Church, and the purpose and function of the Church and the spiritual dynamics for the church age. Now what that brings us to is the last question in this subseries and that is what does the bible teach about god's plan for the future? And everybody gets very concerned about this at different times when there's a lot of chaos, when there's a lot of instability in the world, when there's uncertainty and we certainly live in a time like that and we really have for the last 50 or 60 years ever since the end of World War II. But it seems that in the last 30 years, there is more and more of a heightened expectation that Jesus is probably coming pretty soon. The one thing we have to be careful of is there have been a lot of people throughout history who have thought that that Jesus was coming pretty soon. There have been a lot of people through history who have thought that they knew exactly who the Antichrist was going to be and there have been all kinds of people that have been suggested as the Antichrist. If you were alive during the time of the American War for Independence, then you heard a lot of sermons where George III was identified as the Antichrist. Then if you lived a couple of decades later, as Napoleon was conquering all of the countries in Europe and consolidating his power, people were beginning to say, well, that's one country, two, Are three, we're going to get 10 countries in here. And if so, maybe this is the 10 nation uh, revived Roman empire under Napoleon. So Napoleon was often uh, guessed as being the Antichrist. Uh, later on in the 19th century, people thought that it was Bismarck as he was uniting Germany, uh, then with World War One, people thought that it was the Kaiser because he was going to conquer all of Europe and get ten nations out of that. Later it was Hitler. Uh, even later it was uh, people anywhere from uh, a Russian dictator to uh, Gorbachev with his birthmark on his forehead, identified as the Mark of the Beast. Some people thought it was Ronald Wilson Reagan because each na- each one of his names had six letters, so that was 666. Then people thought, well, maybe it's uh, Bill Clinton, and uh, then some wag commented that, well, uh, there's a passage in Daniel that says that he won't have the love of women and that wouldn't fit Bill Clinton and maybe what, and other things, so anyhow, and then there have been people who thought it was Barack Obama and all kinds of other things, so uh, there's a lot of guesswork, and as technology increases so that it seems like the scenarios that we see in, uh, in biblical prophecy where you have the Antichrist and false prophet able to control the economics of the world through the this mark of the beast that no one can buy or sell without it, that we seem to have the technology to do that. In the midpoint of the tribulation, there are going to be two prophets like Moses and Elijah who have been operating since the beginning of the tribulation. They will be executed by the Antichrist, buried after three days. They are taken directly uh, to heaven and when that happens, then truly all hell will break out on earth because at the same time, Satan and the fallen angels are kicked out of heaven and cast to the earth. So we're going to see all of that in our overview. But people think that we're, getting, we're in the tribulation or getting close, but it's in, this age will end with the rapture. We won't see anything like the tribulation in our life. So just in terms of a prophetic panorama, we are in the church age, and during the church age, unbelievers who die go to Hades. The church age will end with the rapture of the church, and all believers, church age believers, will be taken to be with the Lord in the air. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds, and thus we will ever be with the Lord. The judgment seat of Christ will take place immediately after that, and I believe that since heaven is timeless, we have the passage that, as far as God is concerned, a day in terms of human life is like a thousand years, or a thousand years in human the human time frame is like a day for the Lord, that in terms of two hours going by, in a human life on the earth, all of the church-age saints will be evaluated and judged at the judgment seat of Christ so that by the time the events occur where the scroll is given to the Lamb in Revelation chapter 5, the scroll that that has uh, seven seals, when he starts to open those seals, that's when the tribulation begins— and that uh, there will be a group of people in heaven called the 24 elders. That's resurrected, raptured, rewarded, church-age believers. And so they will already have been rewarded by the time uh, the tribulation begins. The tribulation then begins. It will be seven years of truly hell on earth, and it's divided into two three-and-a-half-year segments. And what marks the beginning is the middle is what will be called the abomination of desolation where the Antichrist will uh, desecrate the temple. There will be a rebuilt third temple in Jerusalem, and that he will desecrate that And that he will set up an idol of himself in the Holy of Holies to be worshipped. And following that, it's going to get much, much worse. Those who die in the tribulation that are not believers will also go to Hades. Those who are believers, their, their souls will immediately be in the presence of the Lord. And they will not get their resurrection bodies until the Lord returns. There's the marriage of the Lamb that immediately precedes the second coming when the Lord comes to the earth. At the rapture, he only comes in the clouds, and then at the second coming, he will come to the earth, and this will be marked by another series of judgments that we'll note a little later on. That's followed by his literal kingdom on the earth, where Jesus, as the greater son of David, will rule for a thousand years. That's what millennium means from the Latin word mille, meaning a thousand. It's a th- literal one thousand year rule and reign. Satan is Uh, in, in the abyss during this time. He's in chains. He's not able to do anything. The human race is going to become rebellious against the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ all by itself without any outside interference from Satan. So they can't say the devil made me do it anymore. And then Satan will be released and he will lead a rebellion against Jesus Christ at the end of the millennium. There will be another judgment there called the Great White Throne Judgment. And then God will create a new heavens and new earth, and we will transition into eternity. At the great white throne judgment, those who have rejected the free gift of Christ's righteousness will be cast into the lake of fire because their works do not add up to the perfect righteousness of God. So that's the prophetic panorama. What pulls it all together is the book of Revelation. And so let's just think about Revelation and the time frame as we go forward because that's a book that many people read and sometimes still get confused over. So we have the rapture over here on the left. Uh, this is when the church is taken to be with the Lord to, to heaven. And then there is a heavenly vision in those chapters that ends with the Lord Jesus Christ taking a scroll. That is sealed with seven seals. He begins to pop those seals, and as he does so, that is the first series of judgments that's covered in th- in uh, chapter six, seven, and through eight, five. The seven seal judgments. The seventh seal, when he breaks the seventh seal, it reveals seven trumpet judgments, and so those trumpet judgments come second. Now, it's clear, we did a lot of work on this when I was teaching Revelation, it is very clear that these two series of judgments must come before the midpoint of the tribulation. Generally speaking, Revelation flows chronologically. First the seal judgments, then the trumpet judgments, and then there's a pause. And it's in that pause that you see the events that surround the abomination of desolation, and you see what goes on in heaven, and it culminates with Satan being cast out of heaven and cast to the earth, which occurs at the midpoint of the tribulation. And you see the consolidation of the Antichrist's power. And so in Revelation 10, it talks about the seven thunders But John is told not to reveal, not to write down what they revealed. So that's a mystery as to what will be involved in those seven thunder judgments. They're sealed up and not written down. And then the last part of the tribulation involves these horrific bowl judgments that will culminate with Christ's return to the earth uh, during the campaign of Armageddon. So that's your structure. So when you read through Revelation, you read 6, 7 and 8, that's the seal judgments, but it doesn't just flow like that. You have movement that takes place. Part of it when it goes through the cycle of the six seal judgments, that's in the end of chapter most of chapter 6, that takes place on the earth. Chapter 7 changes the location to heaven. Then it comes back at the uh, after that to back to the earth. So it's important to keep this in mind. Chapters 4 and 5 take place in heaven. Chapter 6 takes place on the earth. Then the scene changes. Now, see, when people read Revelation, they miss this. You don't have any problem following this when you watch a movie or you watch a TV show and it shifts from one scene to another scene. And I know that you and I have both seen films and watched some uh, suspenseful TV shows where they change the scene to six or seven different scenes within the first ten minutes of the show and you're totally lost and confused. Okay, so this isn't quite that bad. It's either in heaven or it's on the earth. And it goes back and forth, so then you go to Chapter seven, and the scene is in heaven, and you have those who have been martyred in the first uh, six sealed judgments in heaven, and you also are told that during this time of the seal judgment that there is the sealing of 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, and they will go forth as evangelists proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom during the tribulation period. And then chapters 8 and 9 take us back to the earth and what is going on in the earth in terms of the trumpet judgments. And then we shift back to chapter 10 and we're back in heaven as we see what's going on there and then we go back to the earth with the two witnesses in chapter 11 verses 1 through 14 and then we go back to heaven in 11:15 through 12:12 12, 12, and we start looking at some different things that are happening on the heavenly scene and then it shifts to the earth in 12, 13 through 14, uh, 12, 13 through f- the chapter 14. Then we're back in heaven in chapter 15, back to the earth in chapter 16 through 18, up to heaven to see the organization of the uh, bride, the wedding a feast, and then the Lord Jesus Christ returns in 1917 through 20, verse 10. So just keep that in mind as you trace your way through Revelation. What's the scene, heaven or earth? That first seal judgment starts with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That, That phrase is played up in all kinds of literature and film, and it comes directly out of the first four seal judgments. The first is the white horse that brings sort of a cold war on the earth as the Antichrist is consolidating his power. That leads to an open war with the red horse, the second horse, the war is so terrible that it brings a famine on the whole earth. And there's such destruction in the shipping lanes and destruction in all the transport systems that it brings about a huge famine. And then this leads to, go back here, leads to death with the fourth seal, with the uh, ashen horse. Then the fifth seal, there will be an untold number of believers who are martyred. Uh, and they will uh, they will lose their life because of the antagonism to believers, and then there will be physical disturbances on the earth, and a huge asteroid shower uh, comes on the earth and basically wipes out all of the uh, all of the electrical grids and all of the other aspects of civilization. Then the seventh seal is opened, and that reveals the trumpets. Chapter 7 switches to what's going on in heaven, and 8 and 9 take us into the trumpet judgments. And there are going to be uh, seven trumpet judgments, and then just at the end of that first three-and-a-half-year period, there's going to be the blast of the seventh trumpet, and that reveals seven bold judgments. But they come later in the second half. So there you have, through chapter 9, you have those first two series of judgments. Now, the midpoint comes, and that really is built off of a prophecy in Daniel uh, chapter chapter 9. What that basically teaches is that there's going to be a seven-year period It's identified as a week in the English text, but it's seven periods of seven, and the last period of seven is, or 70 periods of seven, and the last period of seven is really a seven-year period. It is going to be split in the middle at three and a half years by the desecration of the Antichrist, the desecration of the temple. And in verse 27 of Daniel 9, we read, That he will confirm a covenant with many, that is the leadership of Israel, for one week, that's seven years. So that's what begins the tribulation period is the signing of this covenant between the Antichrist and Israel. And then in the middle of that week or in the middle of those seven years at the three and a half year point, he brings an end to sacrifice and offering because you've rebuilt the temple. But he's going to stop all, all the ritual. He's going to stop all of that because he's going to set himself up to be God. And this is the abomination that is talked about in the next verse known as the abomination of desolation. And so this characterizes the last half. So the midpoint is the desecration of the temple in the middle of the tribulation period. Matthew 24 and Luke 21 record Jesus on the Mount of Olives called the Olivet Discourse. Luke 21 talks about what's going on with Israel and, and gives information that's not in Matthew 24. In uh, Matthew, or excuse me, Luke 21, 20 to 24, this is called the Days of Vengeance. And Israel is judged. That occurs right before the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. After that, Israel is scattered among the Gentiles, and so Jerusalem is going to be trampled down by the Gentiles and under Gentile authority. And this will extend until the until the end of the tribulation. This is the, known as the times of the of the gentiles and Israel is scattered throughout the world. And then in 21 Luke 21:25 to 28, Jesus says, look up, your redemption draws near, and this is when Israel is redeemed at the end of the tribulation period and then Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom. This desecration of the temple at the midpoint is also spoken of about by Paul in 2 Thessalonians two four, and he says of the prince who is to come that he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped, so that he sits as God in the temple, and the word there is now that refers to the inner holy of holies, in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. So he makes himself out to be God and establishes an idol of himself to be worshipped in the inner holy of holies. That takes us to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12 talks about what Satan is doing. That brings in what we talked about a few weeks ago in terms of the angels and the angelic conflict. And so we have this sign In heaven, a great red dragon, who represents Satan, has seven heads and ten horns. This is the satanic kingdom of the Antichrist. The seven heads represent the seven primary nations that come together. They're going to be ten in all, but according to Daniel chapter 7, the last three are forced into the alliance by being militarily defeated by the Antichrist. So the dragon represents Satan. In verse 4, we read, "...his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth." The stars of heaven is a term used for the angels, the fallen angels, the demons. And so a third of the angels will be thrown to the earth, and that's, they, they become visible they're going to be walking around and they will be seen. They will be intermingling with human beings just like they did in that time period before the flood of Noah in Genesis chapter uh, chapter uh, 6. Later, in the, uh, in the second half of that verse, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. The woman is Israel, and the imagery of the woman with the 12 stars around her head and the sun and the moon gets all of its imagery from uh, one of Joseph's dreams where before his brothers uh, sold him into slavery, he said he had a dream uh, about his father and his mother's father's the son, his mother's the moon, and his uh, brothers, and they are all bowing, they're the stars, and they're all bowing down to him. And so uh, they get all mad at him. That's why they so- send him into slavery but that imagery the woman is Israel and the child that she's going to give birth to is the Messiah and the satan this is depicts satan's attack on the woman that he is going to destroy this child that she gives birth to and this is related then in 12:7 where the scene shifts back to heaven that there's war in heaven And Michael and his angels waged war with the dragon and the dragon and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And then in verse 9, the great dragon is now clearly identified. He's thrown down to the earth, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He's thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So this is in the midpoint of the tribulation period. Now, there's that period of the thunders that's skipped over and not, not recorded or revealed to us. And then this is followed by the seven bold judgments. So that's the picture. You have the seven seal judgments in the first 21 months. Then you have the seven trumpet judgments in the second 21 months. 21 and 21 is 42. 42 months is three years, that's 36 months, plus a half a year, that's six months. That gets you 42 months, that's three and a half years. That is the time period covered in chapters uh, 6, seven eight and nine and then you have this interlude which brings up everybody up to date on what's happening with the angels uh, what's happening with satan what's happening with the kingdom uh, the kingdom of man which is described in chapter 13 and you have some other events covered in 14 and 15 and then now you have the bold judgments and so these bold judgments are going to be covered in uh, chapters uh, fif- uh, 15 goes back to heaven, and then chapters 16 to 18 covers the bold judgments. And it's just absolutely horrific, and mankind comes to the brink of self-destruction. The Jews are persecuted. For, uh, in Matthew 24, Jesus said, When you see this sign of the abomination of desolation, which is halfway through, flee to the mountains so they flee they escape they go south through the hill country of judah they cross over the arabah which is south of the dead sea over into jordan and they hide in the area it's called basra in the old testament this is the area around petra uh, today and so that is where they are protected finally they will call upon jesus as the messiah to rescue them Jesus will return and rescue them and he will lead them in an attack against the Antichrist whose headquarters are in Jerusalem and the tribe of Judah is in the vanguard and they will attack Jerusalem and the Lord Jesus Christ is depicted in the Old Testament prophets as coming out of Basra with his robe dripping blood from the slaughter of an army of the Antichrist. And when Jesus returns, it's described in Revelation 19, John says, "'I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, "'and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, "'and in righteousness he judges and wages war, "'and his eyes are a flame of fire, "'and upon his head are many diadems, "'and he has a name written upon him "'which no one knows except himself, "'and he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood.' And his name is called the Word of God. And so this is uh, the second coming, which occurs here. And this is when there will be a judgment of the uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet, and they're thrown into the lake of fire. The surviving Gentiles and surviving Jews will be uh, given rewards. That's uh, That's covered in Matthew chapter 25. Uh, Old Testament saints will be rewarded and tribulation saints will be rewarded and Satan will be cast into uh, the abyss in chains and then at the end of the millennial kingdom he is judged and thrown into the lake of fire. At the end of the millennial kingdom there will be a great white throne judgment which is judgment on all the unsaved dead. Satan's Satan being bound for a thousand years is spelled out in Revelation 20, verses 2 and 3, and that he will not be able to deceive the nations anymore for a thousand years, but then he will be released. So that kingdom begins, and when the kingdom begins, God will bring to fulfillment the, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant right here at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And that will uh, bring to completion God's plan for Israel. It is all about Israel in the kingdom. Zechariah 8.3 says, Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. At the end of that period, after the revolt by Satan, because God will incinerate them in brimstone and fire, there will be a great white throne judgment. All unbelievers will stand before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge them on the basis of their works. That works is just a general term. What is at issue is, do they have the kind of righteousness necessary to go into heaven? And so all of their works, all of their efforts, everything's piled up, and it reaches about an inch and a half, and yet they have to reach up about two miles to get to the level of the righteousness of God. And so every one of them is a failure because they don't have the righteousness of God. That only comes by faith. By faith in Christ, we are given the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. And that comes by belief, John three eighteen, that you are condemned because we have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then there will be the creation of a new heaven and new earth in Revelation 21, 1. And along with that, there will be the Holy City, the New Jerusalem, will come down to the earth, according to Revelation twenty one twenty three, where John writes, I saw the Holy City, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That is the new heavens and the new earth, which is mentioned by Peter in first second Peter chapter three. So all of this is assumed to have been understood and taught to his readers when he writes this second epistle. So this should all be part and parcel of the believer's basic understanding of the Scriptures. So that concludes our study on, uh, on basics of basics. And then if you want to get into a little more study in the basics, then I did a series uh, several years ago uh, about our foundation for uh, life and foundation for living. And you can listen to those uh, after this. So with that, next week we'll be back into Second Peter, going forward into the rest of uh, verse 2 of chapter 1 and on into what's one of the most significant verses in any writing of the New Testament, and that is verses 3 through 5. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to have this flyover to understand the framework of your plan and your purpose and what will transpire in the future, that we know that no matter how chaotic things are, no matter what Things may happen and transpire in our lives, no matter what uncertainty there may be. There is absolute certainty in your plan and your purpose, and that our role is to prepare people for what will come in the future through the proclamation of the gospel, telling our friends and family and anyone who will listen the gospel of Jesus Christ, and also challenging them to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that we might be worthy of that challenge ourselves, that we might make our spiritual growth the highest priority in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.